Those of you who know me are very much aware of my constant frustration with all of the bull that can be found on the internet. There is one site that continually pops up whenever I Google history of some state, 50states.com, and it purports to have 50 interesting facts and trivia about each and every separate state. Now, these lists look like they were lazily and sloppily slapped together by a middle school student for a class report. No offense against above average middle school students. Some of these facts are just obvious statements. For example, regarding the state of Missouri, the site claims that the state capital, Jefferson City, was named after the third president, Thomas Jefferson. Duh. Guess what? 50states.com. Washington County in Missouri was named after the first president, George Washington, as was the town Washington, Missouri, in Franklin County, which was named after Benjamin Franklin, the inventor of the $100 bill. Other exaggerations and fallacies about other states that can be found on the website 50states.com. When the Japanese and Americans fought on the Aleutian Islands of Alaska in 1943, it was the first battle on American soil since the American Civil War. Really? What about that thing that happened December 7th, 1941 in Honolulu? What was that called? Pearl Harbor? Yeah, that. And then, perhaps you should ask the Apache, Lakota, Cheyenne, Arapaho, Paiute, Shoshone, Halapai, Ute, Navajo, Comanche, Modoc, Kiowa, Nez Pierce, Bannock, and Ojibwa people if there were any battles on American soil after the American Civil War. And if you say those weren't really battles, then you're a monkey-loving snake hole. Another. Wisconsin produces more milk than any other state. Nah. California produces almost 51 billion pounds of milk annually. Wisconsin is second with just over 29 billion. So that isn't even close. Another fact on 50states.com. In Arizona, Tombstone, Ruby, Julette, and Gunsight are among the ghost towns scattered throughout the state. Tombstone's always had people living in it. It's never been a ghost town. It was the it was the county seat of Cochise County until 1929, and it's been a tourist destination since Hollywood did the first gunfight at OK, OK Corral some 80 years ago. And today it has a population of about 1,380. And if that's a ghost town, then I guess those 1,380 people are all dead. But perhaps the one fact when I first read it, I knew was just absolute. Dookie. The state of Nebraska, 50states.com claims, has more miles of river than any other state. Now that sounds like something that a drunk uncle pulled out of his hoo-ha during the conversation after Thanksgiving dinner. Firstly, Nebraska is a state that I am more than just a little casually familiar with. I have been over Nebraska from east to west multiple times. And I've also been over Minnesota from south to north multiple times. And I can guarantee Minnesota, besides having having 11,000 plus lakes, has a lot more miles of river than Nebraska. And I've also been across Missouri, northeast to southwest, northwest to southeast, all over the place. I've been to every county in Missouri. I don't think there's a lot of people who can say that, but I can. And I know that it has more miles of river than the Cornhusker State. So I did some research, and I discovered just what I thought. Alaska, California, and Montana, that's the first, third, and fourth largest states, have in order 365,000 miles, 189,000 miles and 169,000 miles of rivers in each of those states, respectively. And those were the top three. Honorable mentions to Missouri and Oregon with 110,000 each and Idaho with 107,000 each. Nebraska has only 79,000 miles of river and streams. Minnesota has 92,000. So see, my assumption was right, and would probably have more miles in Minnesota if you counted all those lakes that are parts of the chains of river systems. These are facts that are so easily verified. Just Google miles of river in name any state. Another website, only in your state, also passed on this prevarication about the miles of river in Nebraska, and I wonder which website was first, the ignorant or the apathetic. These misstatements by these two websites are no reflection upon the great state of Nebraska. Nebraska. As a matter of fact, a number of Nebraskans were quick to point out the fallacy in these facts. Now, one thing that Nebraska is number one in, 
It has the largest underground water aquifer in North America, the Ogallala Aquifer, and that's a good thing because you know what? You need water to grow corn and barley and hops and to make beer. And I had some great beer in Omaha just last month. If you really want to get me onto a rant about something that's on the internet, though, ask me about seagull wine. This is episode 14. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Thank you, Jessica. And guess what, everybody? I might have a chance to learn about seagull wine next week. I'll tell you more about that at the end of the show. And hello, beer geeks and travel nerds. And thank you for putting us in your ear. I just got in off the road on Thursday after a 1,200-mile-plus tour of the South by Southeast. I visited Yazoo Brewing in Nashville, which we featured on last week's episode, and Sweetwater Brewing in Atlanta, Lazy Magnolia Brewing in the Kiln, Mississippi, Lost 40 Brewing in Little Rock, and all of which will be featured in upcoming shows. This week's episode takes us up to Omaha, Nebraska, and Infusion Brewing, which has one of the best vanilla blonde ales I have ever drank, and they're getting ready to put out a vanilla blonde ale aged in Madagascar rum cask. I don't know. It sounds just absolutely. You're going to hear all about it in the interview. And they have a Dominican Republic-inspired brown ale that I absolutely wish I had brought more Back home with me, it's so good. One of the best brown ales I've ever drank. Also, we have a report from Tony about a new brewery destination in Columbus, Ohio, that you may want to call and make a reservation. You'll see what we're talking about when you hear it. But first, let's take a look at the history of Omaha, particularly of one man who kept Omaha wet when the rest of Nebraska was dry. So let's head up the Missouri River. We'll turn north to Kansas City and take a hard lift at Council Bluffs and check out Omaha, Nebraska. And now we head on down the road with the Bruce Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint and who will we meet? Let's find out. I was poking around and doing some research about Omaha, and I came across a story about this guy that I'm going to tell you right now. He was the boss of Omaha during Prohibition. One of the things that Prohibition did across the country was facilitate the growth and consolidate the power of organized crime, especially in major cities. Some of the most famous names in gangster land came about during this area. New York saw the rise of Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, all under the tutelage of Joe Masseria, as well as rivals. Dutch Schultz and Arnold Rothstein. Chicago had Al Capone, Johnny Torrio, and Bugs Moran. Philly had Legs Diamond. Atlantic City had Nucky Johnson. Stefano Magadino out of Buffalo controlled everything from Montreal to Cleveland. Mickey Coney earned his chops in Cleveland before moving on to Los Angeles. King Charles Solomon and Frank Wallace ran the rackets in Boston and New England. And further west in Kansas City, Johnny Lazia and political boss Tom Pendergast controlled the flow of illicit alcohol. Most middle-sized cities in the Midwest, however, didn't control their own bootlegging operations. St. Louis, which was larger than Kansas City at the time, while nominally controlled by the Giordano family, really, it answered to KC. Des Moines mobsters like Charlie Cheerios Giona and Louis Frado answered to Chicago. Isidore Kid Can Blumenfeld in Minneapolis, he paid homage to both Capone and the Genovese crime organization, ran by Joe Mazzaria out of New York. But Omaha was different. One Tom Dennison, the son of Irish immigrants, at 34 years of age, arrived in Omaha in 1888 with $75,000 in his pocket, and he found a town that was wide open. Born in Iowa in 1858, as a very young man, he earned his chops by heading west to the boom towns associated with mining, where he first worked as a prospector, but quickly figured out that eh, the real gold to be made was from pulling it out of the pockets of the other people doing the mining. He became a saloon keeper, then a pimp, and he ran and many gambling dens, the most famous of which being the Opera House Gambling Saloon of Leadville, Colorado, and the Board of Trade Saloon in Butte, Montana. Dennison originally came to Omaha just to start another gambling saloon. He began by controlling the card games and the gambling in the Rivertown, and he turned his 75K into millions. No one is quite sure how much money he ever accumulated.
related. He became involved in local politics to protect his earnings. And while he never held office himself, he supported candidates from either political party, depending upon what they assured Dennison they would do for him once they held office. Before Prohibition, Dennison worked as a liaison and a power broker between the local politicians and officials and the vice captains that were working below him, keeping the money flowing into everybody's pockets. His gambling, prostitution, and drinking establishments were mainly located in Omaha's Third Ward. To eliminate competition in other parts of the city, he secretly and anonymously financially supported local temperance and anti-saloon groups to eliminate over half of the saloons in Omaha in those neighborhoods where he didn't have any business. He would then open up illicit saloons, speakeasies if you will, in those neighborhoods taking over the drinking and many times the gambling and prostitution rackets in that part of the city. His power was such that for 25 years, the police and mayor reported to him daily. A newspaper reporter once asked him about criminal activities in Omaha, to which he replied, There are so many laws that people are either lawbreakers or hypocrites. For my part, I hate a damn hypocrite. Dennison had a lock on Omaha politics through his reign. His approval to run for office was gained through payment of bribes by supporting the rest of his political slate. In 1906, Omaha Republicans, supporting the progressive movement, nominated a reformer named Erastus Benson for mayor. Dennison was fearful that Benson would come out in favor of prohibition, as well as having unfavorable views towards his other activities. With Dennison's support, the Democrats nominated James C. Cal boy Jim Dahlman, a popular first-time candidate. Dahlman seemed to be more tolerant of Dennison's activities, so Dennison supported him. Dahlman was elected mayor that year, and in eight of the nine subsequent campaigns for mayor between 1906 and 1930, as long as Dahlman was mayor, Dennison's business interests continued to operate unmolested. When Prohibition took effect in Nebraska in 1917, three years before the Volstead Act and National Prohibition, Dennison set up the Omaha Liquor Syndicate. He also established trade networks with Capone in Chicago and Pendergast in Kansas City. In 1929, more than 1,500 outlets in the city were selling alcohol that was either supplied or sanctioned by Tom Dennison. His influence over the mayor helped Dennison install family members and city jobs all over Omaha. State officials, furious about the power that Dennison held over the city, conducted several raids, driving several establishments underground. However, with Dennison's assistance, as soon as one establishment was closed, it reopened in another location, and Omaha remained, as one state official noted, a lawless, boisterous town. In 1932, Dennison suffered a paralytic stroke, from which he partially recovered within a couple of months. In August of that year, Dennison and 58 business associates were indicted on federal charges of conspiracy to violate the Volstead Act, but the Omaha jury was hung and the judge declared a mistrial. That winter, Dennison nearly died of pneumonia. The next year, nearly every Dennison-selected candidate was defeated. The conspiracy charges were dropped by the federal government in early 1934 after prohibition had been lifted. A month later, while visiting business associates, in San Diego, Tom Dennison was killed in an automobile accident. His body was returned to Omaha with a funeral at St. Peter's Catholic Church, and he is today buried in Forest Lawn Cemetery. Now, by the way, Erastus Benson, the fellow that I mentioned earlier that Dennison worked so doggedly to defeat in the 1906 mayoral election, he never again ran for political office, but Benson may have had a greater and further lasting impact on the city of Omaha. He was a member of the Omaha Chamber of Commerce and the city's real estate exchange, and Benson purchased over 900 acres of farmland on the northwest edge of Omaha and platted out a suburb, Benson Place, in 1887. And in that town, he donated land for public schools, a town hall, churches, and an orphanage. Benson Place was eventually annexed by the city of Omaha in 1917, and now, today, it is known as the Benson Neighborhood, which just happens to be the home location of this week's featured brewery, Infusion Brewing Company, where I sat down with Dave Link and Max Stewart, and we talked about craft brewing in Nebraska, and here it is, your interview of the week. Hello, everybody from Omaha, Nebraska. I am at 
Infusion Brewing Company here in the Benson neighborhood of Omaha, and I'm here with Dave Link and Max Stewart, both of whom are interchangeably the lead and head brewers of the place. <laughs> and we're having some beers, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the craft brewing scene here in Benson. Dave, Max, hey, thanks for having us on. Thanks for, hey, thanks for stopping by. by. Yeah, yeah, good to see um, you. I, you know, I, the way I figure out, I, I go online and I look at reviews, and I see, when I see reviews where people are talking about malt, uh, it's, it's malt intense or it's hop forward, or when I hear stuff like that in the comments, then I know they're doing something right. If somebody just says, oh, they got good beer, you know, it's like, okay. The brew heads will find you if you're making good beer. So <laughs> true enough. So, how did you guys get involved in craft brewing? And Dave, we'll go with you first. Um, well, it started out like like most people that kind of work in the brewery industry, just liking to drink craft beer. Um, probably my gateway beer was probably for most people Midwest Boulevard wheat. Right. Um, was kind of the first thing that that got me going away from my college Bud Miller Coors, whatever I could get super cheap. Right. Um, and then after that, I started um, doing some consulting work and marketing for the gentleman that actually owns the brewery. Um, he owns a few other bars in town. So what, what, What's his name? Uh, Bill Baburek. Bill. Yeah. Right, he, right. Uh, I started doing some, some consulting for Bill, uh, social media and marketing consulting. And then uh, Max and uh, one of our original uh, brewers, Aaron, actually taught me to homebrew about, what, like seven years ago now? Seven, eight years, I think? Seems about right. Yeah, it's aging myself. But homebrewed for, for five or so years and, and knew... Beer was where I wanted to end up. It's the I got bit by the homebrew bug and the allure of doing homebrewing on an even bigger scale. Thankfully, my my wife was supportive of a complete career change. But a little over two years ago, um, had a position open up here at Infusion and couldn't have picked a better place to to start learning to brew professionally. So. What were you doing before that? Uh, I was in marketing and public relations. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, so. Uh, copywriting specifically, right. word nerd. Um, but uh, went from word nerd to beer nerd. So, what about you, Max? Um, I was uh, working part time bartending for our owner uh, at his bars uh -huh. uh, when this idea came about. And myself and, and the original head brewer Aaron, uh, when we found out about the project, both just jumped up and put our hands in the air and said, "Pick me, pick me, pick me." <laughs> uh, at the time, I was I was bartending the evenings and I was uh, setting tile during the day on my own and that was fun fun work I enjoyed doing it but I can talk about beer all day long and uh, it, it just seemed like a, a much better move for me to get into something where I could get paid to talk about beer all day long Aaron and I both we were in at the very beginning of this project uh, he and I did most of the demo in this facility mm -hmm. uh, getting ready to build it back out as a brewery instead of a combination of a workshop wood shop and just leftover smokers and so forth from when this was a, uh, a meat market. So what about the name Infusion? What what inspired that? Uh, really, it was kind of a, a the best way to describe how Aaron and I were as home groups. Mm -hmm. um, we, we looked at beer as something that we loved, but something that, that could always be different. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had no fear of adding just some strange things to beers. Find out. <laughs> uh, we brewed beers with, with circus peanuts, with gummy worms. Um, early in his homebrew career, Aaron actually brewed a beer, and he used a bunch of Mountain Dew concentrate from a soda machine. <laughs> just because what would happen what if? What would happen? Uh, you're a mad scientist. <laughs> yeah. And that, uh, we felt like a... a very good description of if you walk in the door and you see infusion you're going to come in and you're going to see a lot of beers that have been infused with different flavors we tend to i mean i think all of us tend to be more seasonal beer drinkers so we mm. tend to brew beers we like to drink in that season of the year right so it runs the gamut from fruit to sour to sweet to chocolate to tart i mean it's just all over the board so it's it's a lot of fun how big is your brewery uh, production here and over at the other place? So this facility uh, is our original one. It's a seven-barrel brew house. Okay. Um, we've got uh, six seven-barrel fermenters, two 15-barrel fermenters, uh, three 10-barrel brights, and one 15-barrel bright. So we've got right just a little over 200 barrels of capacity okay. here. Um, 
everything that we do here goes on draft um, for the time being. We actually just purchased a, uh, a two-head bomber filler. So we're gonna be starting to, starting to do some more special release stuff out of this facility, but um, but this one has ba basically been where we brew our smaller scale seasonals, where we'll supplement our production facility if they need more draft, um, because everything out of here is, is going to tap. So. Okay. How many barrels per annum? Between the two facilities, we're just shy of 7,000, I think. Okay. Yeah, 7,000 last year. And you, you've actually only been in production for five years. Correct. Yes. Our yeah. production facility is a 20-barrel brew house from mm -hmm. Alpha Brewing Operations out of Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. uh, and I've got 260 barrels of fermentation capacity there in 20-barrel, 40-barrel, and a 60-barrel fermenters. And then I've got an individual bright for each size. It's also where we do our the brunt of our bottling. Um, we've got a, a six-head bottle filler there that basically everything packaged comes out of that facility okay. um, thanks to a lot of hard work from our seller staff because yeah. that bottle that bottle filler is is a uh, is a challenge we'll say it's, <laughs> so it's here, here's the thing about a six head maheen filler <laughs> it's gonna run forever there is constant maintenance and there will constantly be at least one guy on the package team that is just furious <laughs> and that is maheen <laughs> very happy with it but those poor packaging guys, I'll tell you what, they work for it. Yeah. And I'm spoiled at this, this facility as well. I actually have air conditioning. Those, those poor guys don't. So when it's, when it's 110 out today like it is, it's probably 102 in the production facility. So they're, they're mm -hmm. working their butts you're, off in a lot of heat. You're just sweltering. <laughs> yeah. Looking at your portfolio that I see up here on the wall, I can say pretty much... You really don't have a portfolio. <laughs> you, you guys are all over the place. Man. We are. We've got <laughs> we've got a small group of core beers um, led by our vanilla bean blonde, right? Which is you know eighty percent of what we produce out of the production facility. Mm -hmm. And we have our radial IPA, which is a West Coast style right IPA. Yep. I'm drinking right now. It's, yep. It's great. Uh, and then our Dominican Brown Ale, mm -hmm. which okay. is a uh, nearly porter like brown ale with lactose. Um, we all took a trip to the Dominican Republic a few years ago and we brought back some coffee, some cocoa, some vanilla and thought, well, let's, let's try and make a beer with this. So we made a pilot batch and people sitting at the bar just went crazy. They loved it. Mm -hmm. Aaron and I had a brown ale on tap called Butcher Block Brown. Mm -hmm. And because when we started, our owner says, hey, we've got 15 taps. I want a West Coast IPA. You guys figure the rest of it out. Go nuts. Mm -hmm. All the freedom. This is great. And Aaron and I looked at each other. We go, brown ales are boring, by and large. Let's do something fun. And this being an old butcher shop, we called it Butcher Block Brown. And it was something that we were very happy with and very proud of. Um, it's a great beer. But the Dominican generated such a response. And we couldn't justify having two brown ales on tap, especially in Nebraska. So, <laughs> unfortunately, Butcher Block went into the cabinet and... Um, only comes out once every couple of years as a, a special treat for mm -hmm. St. Anniversary party or the like. But uh, the DR Brown dramatically overtook it. And so those three beers, the Vanilla Bean, the Radial, and the DR Brown, those are our, our package portfolio, if you will. We've recently added an old Omaha brand called Metz. Uh, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was a lager that was produced here. And uh, we are in no way trying to recapture that recipe. We developed our own um, all-German ingredient recipe that we're very happy with. Uh, but our owner is a huge beer historian, especially for the Omaha area. Right. Yeah. He saw an opportunity to revive an old Omaha name and really wanted to take advantage of it. So we did. A childhood friend of mine, his granddad was the commercial artist for Mets. And uh, our owner had met him a long time ago when they were when our owner was young just to ask him some questions about beer and trying to learn more. My friend called me up a few years back and says, hey, I'm trying to clean out my granddad's old house so I can get it sold. There's all this old beer stuff in there. Do you want any of it? No. I don't know. He goes, it's mostly old Omaha stuff. I said, I know a guy that does. All right. I, got I called my owner and we went over there and this was a hoarder house. I mean, it was full, but the amount of stuff that he pulled out of there as a collector is wow. just Insane. unrivaled. I mean, everything you can see in this tap room 
is Bill's. Yeah. Like it came from his personal collection, uh, especially the Omaha brands and the dairy milk cartons and the old coolers and the taxidermy as well for good or bad. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, who doesn't need a cowboy squirrel with six shooters? Um, that's Where? The, uh, he's hiding over there by the vodka. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, he's he's the thermometers and all of that kind of stuff in here is, is all from his collection. You know, distribution. Where are you guys at? Where are you going? And we are just within the great state of Nebraska. Okay, that's the only place you can find us. Okay. Um, we just opened up north, the North Scotts, Platte, Scotts Bluff, Scotts, yep. Scotts Bluff area about yeah. two or three weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so about three quarters of the state can get our distribution currently. Um, I think the plan is to basically get border to border by the end of the year mm-hmm. yep. um, but uh, originally it was tap room only basically Omaha uh, when it first started so over the last five years we're, we're pretty close to border to border anything down the low road like looking like going into across the river we we get a lot of inquiries particularly from Iowa and uh, Kansas Missouri mm-hmm. Kansas City um, we are still kind of looking at the new Glarus model, which is right. if you want our beer, you got to come to. Please yeah. come to our community. That way, you can also see our neighbors. Right. Because we've got some great neighbors right. doing some really neat things. Yeah, that's a good model when you're starting out. And yeah. then once you get that, once you get Nebraska taken care of, then you can decide what you want to do. Right. They have decided they don't want to. Right. And we still, in almost five years have not reached a point where we feel like we are ahead of our demand, right. particularly for vanilla. Right. And yeah. so as we slowly have opened up sections of the state and, and still can't get ahead of that, we're going, there's no reason to think about leaving this state until we can make enough beer for the people in the state that want yeah, to consume it. Once we have some yeah. excess, then right. maybe. But yeah, I mean, it's we're running full tilt. You know, five six days a week on average. So there's there's no there's no lack of uh, beer being sold. That's for sure. <laughs> that's a good place to be. Yeah, it's yeah. a good problem to have. Okay, Max. Probably I'll start with you on this since you've been here the longest. What's the worst day ever <laughs> in in Fusion Brewing? Okay. Well, what broke <laughs> the boiler? Okay. It was at this facility before we'd opened the production facility. You're the second place out of, I've interviewed in the last four months that has said that's the boiler. Yeah, there you go on. We had, uh, gosh, I can't remember. So the system that we use here, this system sat non-use for about a decade in downtown Omaha. We revi- pulled it out of there, got it back and working and everything again. Steam Jacket had a few leaks. Still does. Still does, yeah. Um, We've done our best. What happened was the boiler was having such a hard time as that leak grew bigger, uh, trying to keep up with the system, that it was constantly hitting the call box to send water in. Well, one day, it was calling for so much water, and for whatever reason, that call box was piped with cold water. And it dumped so much cold water into the bladder of the boiler that it just cracked. Dumped water all over the floor. Boiler is now out of commission. We cannot afford to be down at this time. So we get a hold of a local uh, mechanical company, Drexel Mechanical. Guys were great. They came in and worked with Aaron and I overnight that night. Mm -hmm. Um, They had a new boiler, same size, at their warehouse. And Aaron and I, having been here since 7 that morning... Worked with those guys, got the entire boiler replaced, got everything back up and running by about four the following morning. Went and ate breakfast and came back to brew again. And so we had, in 48 hours, we probably worked 45 of them. Wow. <laughs> and it was, it was a long stretch. And when people talk about opening a small business is a lot of work and requires a lot of effort, that's exactly what they're talking about exactly. as far as I'm yeah. concerned. You don't get to go home just because you want to go home. That was a long day. <laughs> But uh, we got through it. What's the best day ever? Man, that's a tough one because it's, it's somewhere in between the first time one of my personal homebrew recipes went on tap and then went through the distributor and was on tap at the bar I grew up drinking in. Or it was the day that, that we looked at all, all of the paperwork and said, we can afford to build a new facility. And we have to, but we can. That that was neat. Yeah. Uh, 
and, and extremely humbling. Right. <laughs> what about you, Dave? For you, I'm just yeah. Best? I'm sitting here. Best day. It's kind of every homebrewer's dream to see your beer go on tap at a bar. Right. Even whether it's you know your buddy's bar, whether it's an actual bar bar. Um, but yeah, that's that's a pretty amazing feeling. Um, the other day is we are fortunate enough to know a gentleman named Gerd um, who lives yeah. in uh, Bullbrock, Germany. And um, why did I not think of this? I don't know. I figured you, I, I figured you were going to steal this from me, but I'm going to take it now. Um, so, <laughs> um, Bill, over the years, he he takes an annual trip to Europe with a group of people to basically tour craft beer in a different part of the world. Um, over the years, he's made very good friends with this uh, gentleman named Gerd in in Bilbrock, Germany, who is the fifth or sixth generation sixth, sixth generation brewer um, at his family's brewery. Um, at uh, Brauerei Gasthof Eck, um, and he made the flight over. Um, literally a three-day trip. He flew over, <laughs> stayed with us for a day. He allowed us to brew um, his five-time gold medal-winning uh, international gold medal-winning Dunkel um, on our facility. Was unbelievably kind enough to just give us the recipe to use. And we have since um, adapted it to basically fit our water profile. And that's the dunkel we have on tap right now is the Wilderer dunkel. It's our adjusted version of um, Gastoff Brauerei X five-time gold medal winning dunkel ale. Um, wow. I don't know that there's a lot that can kind of top that. Um, having him over here for a few days and just getting to kind of, because my wife and I were fortunate enough to have met him about two years prior. Um, we went on one of those trips. Um, so to kind of see things come full circle on that um, and really know that the only place you're going to get even close to that original beer on tap in the U.S. is in this market at this brewery is, like Max said, very humbling and very awesome uh, yeah. at the at the same time. So that's, that's probably my best day. That's a great story. Yeah, it's... We also... I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how else to categorize it. Right. That was just an awesome day. <laughs> and uh, this is how I'm going to get out of this, is you said the best day here. <laughs> so I wasn't really thinking about the fact that we also... Aaron and I had the opportunity to go to Germany <laughs> and brew with him on his system. Okay. Yeah. And that was without question the greatest day I've had in brewing. Because <laughs> that particular brewery has been in operation for... 1500 something like that I think since yeah. yeah yeah not too long after Weinstepan yeah and and to be allowed in there and and have him you know here's my equipment come on help me right. brew right still a direct fire Unbelievable. wood wood fueled kettle on there yep. wow yeah. yep a wood fueled wood fueled kettle yeah that's and it's all the all the the lagering tanks that he has are for World War II era bunkers that they built um, that they, then they just slid in these long horizontal lagering tanks that you walk into because it's basically at the base yeah, of the Alps. It's a man-made cave. Yeah, yeah. it's basically yeah. at the base of the Alps, so it's right. constantly 53 degrees in this man-made cave. And the only way he controls the heat in there is through some louvers that literally um, dig up and that, that vent up and down through the ground. So that was a very long couple Good. of answers to your question. Good. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Something about the industry that has surprised you, that you didn't anticipate. Easily, how friendly everyone is. When I got out of high school, uh, started college, I got a job at an insurance recovery company. Nobody talked about anything, nobody shared anything. This industry, I've encountered so many people from other breweries we start talking about, hey, I'm working on brewing this kind of beer. Right. Hey, I'm thinking about doing this kind of project. And they just say, here's everything I know about this. We're all technically competing, but we're not. It, it's a brotherhood in this industry that I was in no way prepared for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a it's a rising tides raise all ships right. approach. Yep. Like yeah, when right. everybody does better, everybody does better. Right. Well, that's um, right. That's... The, the first craft brewers conference I attended uh, was in Denver five years ago. Uh, Aaron and I were big fans of Epic Brewing, uh, in particular their Big Bad Baptist. Love that beer. So we decided we've got to go to the tap room while we're here, and, and we do. We're having a couple beers, and we're kind of standing over their fence looking at their production area. The guy walks by, 
waves at us. He sees our little lanyards from the Brewers Conference. He says, hey, you guys looking around? Do you want to come back and look around? Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome, man. <laughs> so he kind of gives us this quick impromptu tour, and we get back to where they're aging their barrels. And Aaron and I, of course, are talking about the Big Bad Baptist and all these things and how we're just this fledgling brewery that's just thinking about ordering our first set of barrels. And he, he kind of looks at us and smiles. He says, you know, I run our entire barrel program here. That's actually my function. I'll be right back. And he walks away to a different room for about two minutes, comes back with a binder that had to have been eight inches thick, and just hands it to us. And he goes, this is everything I know about barrel-aging beer. Go nuts. And he just let us take it out to the tap room and sit there and take notes, take pictures, read and learn until we were done. Yeah. And I... I was just blown away by that. I I think there's no other industry that does that. No. I mean, definitely not. You know, I worked in marketing out of grad school uh, in the in the chemical industry, the commodity chemical industry. Nobody would do that. That's all proprietary. No, no, nothing. And when you left, you had to sign a non-compete. You could be sued. And when when I left, they said, "Well, we're going to need you to sign this." I'm not putting this in podcast. I said, (laughs) "I don't know why the." You want me to sign that? I'm not going to get back in this <laughs> business. I got <laughs> after four years. I got <laughs> really bad. <laughs> and they said, "Well, we'll give you an extra five grand. I'll sign it." Okay, sure. <laughs> All right. But no, I, there's no other industry that that that, that would happen. No, no, I mean, if you look at like, I think it's Avery that I was amazed by a few years ago. They started publishing the percentages uh, of their grain bill and their hops bills. On, the, on their website yeah. for people. So, like, if you, as a home brewer, wanted to brew a version of White Rascal, they literally had the percentages. You could see it's 80% two-row, 10% wheat, 5% whatever. Like, they literally gave you the percentage recipe breakdown of some of their core beers. And as a result, I bought more Avery every chance I could get sure. because I'm like, all right, if you're confident enough in your game and you're willing to share this... Like, I'm willing to pay you for your product because mm-hmm. you, you're willing to give it away for free, essentially. Like, that, it's that, nuts. That Ellie's brown ale. Yes. One of the best, that's one yeah. of the best brown ales I have ever drank. Yeah, it really doesn't, make, it doesn't the, make bad beer. The first time I had that beer, that was purely a label purchase. Right. I'm, a, I'm a sucker for uh, dogs. Me too. <laughs> but again, we, we talked earlier about how we, I've always thought that brown ales are kind of boring. That one's no. not. What do you see as the big challenges coming down the road? Pops. Pops, yeah. Um, Pops. I mean, it, yeah, especially everyone, with doing the IPAs yeah, now. Everyone and their mother is uh, has seven or eight IPAs on tap, and they all are now the New England um, hazy IPAs, and they all have massive amount of Whirlpool and dry hop additions, and they now... So, I mean, there's... Uh, that's that's not to say I'm not bagging on the style. Actually, I enjoy the way. I will. Um, it's, I I know you will, which is why I'm saying I'm not. Um, but but it, you have such a huge amount of hops going into whatever scale you're brewing at right. that your yield is lower, your initial cost is higher. Like we, you the, say, huge amount scale. of hops. You mean to say wasteful amount of hops? <laughs> Max is a little averse to New England IPAs, as you can tell. Um, but it's 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 just one of those where I still don't know that we're going to be able to produce enough to support the way that we are currently brewing as an right. industry. Which is why, if you start to if you look at some of the bigger boys in craft. You're starting to see a swing back toward your more traditional styles of beer, your lagers, uh, your pale ales, some of your your simpler beers that it just it can't sustain at scale for everybody. So I think that's going to be interesting over the, in the short term. Yeah. So yeah, the other challenge. I mean, as we're sitting here, I'm thinking more of them, more, more of them. I mean, we have something around 6,800 craft breweries so I mean to be fair let's 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 look back at numbers pre-prohibition we had around 2,800 breweries nationwide with a nationwide population of 30 million let's say maybe 50 so in theory we're now close to 500 million people we could in theory support tenfold the number of breweries but I don't see the market supporting 28,000 small craft breweries I I see them supporting maybe 10,000 maybe 12,000 um, but ultimately, the markets continue to shrink and shrink and shrink, and I don't know that you're ever going to see another Boulevard. I don't know that you're ever going to see another 
Odell or another New Belgium or another Yungling. I, I don't think you will simply because that piece of the pie is gone. So now we're taking whatever slivers of that other piece of pie is and going hyper-local with everything, which is why you've seen this explosion in breweries in Nebraska. And a lot of them are in small towns. But you're just never going to get to the point where I, I think we see another another Shiner, another another Ballast Point. And the, right. none of that's really going to happen again, I don't think. And that's fine. It's, it's been it's interesting to me to watch what's going on with Green Flash right now because they... They, to me, are the, the mid-major brewery that's trying to figure out how to maintain that relevance right. mm-hmm. amidst all of the other, we'll say, questionable decisions they've made. But they bought a, a brewery that went out of business down in Lincoln mm-hmm. um, and have opened up a tap room down there. And they're brewing green flash beers in Lincoln, Nebraska mm-hmm. uh, with the thought that, hey, I can be a national brand, but if I brew it down the street from you, maybe that will help me stay relevant in your market. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really interested in how that will ultimately play out. Right? Yeah. I am thrilled to be working at a brewery of this scale as opposed yep. to being somebody... One that's trying... You're, you're working at a brewery that's going up mm-hmm. rather than one that's just trying to maintain right. trade and maintain market. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to believe that, that fighting for relevance on a national scale right now has got to be one of the hardest things that yeah. any brewery is doing. What can folks expect out of Infusion coming down the line? Anything new? More gummy worms? We, we, we've been fortunate in that with opening the production facility the last uh, year and a half or so ago, um, one, of the, one of the ways we've done that is by having the quarterly sour that we're releasing. So right. we're trying to do something new every three to four months there. So at this facility... Um, with some test beers, with some new versions of core beers, right. with some updated versions of seasonals, and with some stuff that's just completely off the wall, and we may end up dumping the whole thing. In fact, we're, yeah, we're, we're also... Dave just did that today. He brewed a, uh, a version of our Vanilla Bean Blonde. Mm-hmm. Uh, we decided to add some lactose to it. Yep. So twice a year, summer and winter, we have a bean fest. Different infusions on Vanilla Bean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for the summer one, we've got coming up August 4th, uh, we're doing a dreamsicle bean, right. and there's a waffle cone bean, and Caramel. a couple others that we yeah. thought, you know what, if we took the vanilla bean recipe and added some lactose to it, that would lend itself to these flavors wonderfully. Bingo. Yeah. So that's... Yeah. We're getting to play around with that kind of stuff. Um, we're also, like I mentioned, we're with the ability of, of bottling some things out of this facility now on the small scale. Um, we can now do limited bottle runs of special dry hop versions of radial. We can now do bottle runs of our Gramber ale or of uh, really anything that we want out of this facility that previously, if we wanted to put anything in bottles, it had to go to the production scale, which meant we had to brew at least 20 barrels of it. So brewing even five barrel versions of it, if we scale down, because that, that system can handle it, we can take two or three kegs of something and do a limited bottle release. So uh, we're also playing around with more barrel aging. So again, with that production facility has just given us the luxury here to, this to is play your, around with This is the lab. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. get I get Dave gets to have all the fun. I, was just say, I, I get just the luxury sweat of having a lot the fun with no air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we we just get to we get to kind of go back to our roots, which was when we were just out of this facility You'd have a new beer on tap pretty much every week. Tomorrow, actually, I'm going to go pick up some barrels. We're going to barrel age vanilla bean in barrels that were used for bourbon barrel oh, uh, Madagascar vanilla, vanilla extract. That'll yeah. be delicious. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Well, we'll good start, you guys are starting to pick up, which is a good thing. You need to make some money. Uh, well, what's neat about this is uh, this group right over here is actually owner of one of our local hop yards. Okay. They hang out in here every Wednesday. Okay. And uh, that's great for us to be able to per- just weekly right. talk to a local hop grower. How's it right. going? What are right. things looking like? Right. Good. Uh, yeah, really enjoy that. Hop grower and home brewer association night. So it's, yeah. you get a lot of people in here. Because I always end this with the lightning round, and uh, <laughs> since this is infusion brewing, uh, things that are put together, infused, are go together, okay? Okay. All right? All right. All right. Remember, there are no right or wrong answers, only right or wrong people. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Salt and pepper or sugar and spice? Salt and pepper for me. All right. Same. All right. Gin and tonic or Jack and Coke? 
Jack and Jack Coke. and Coke. <laughs> go Black ahead, and go Tan ahead. or Shandy? Ooh. I'm gonna can I can I walk to the side and just have a Rattler? There you go. That'll be worth. That's a German Shandy. I'm there gonna, you go. I'm gonna go with the Black and Tan. It's okay. tough to turn that down. All right. Either one of you ever played D and D? Yeah. Uh, a little bit. Half elves <laughs> or half orcs? Have orcs. I'm gonna go half elves. Right. I always like the elves. All right. Lastly, Fred and Barney or Tom and Jerry? God, I can't remember. I didn't the last realize that the, the lightning oh. round was gonna be so difficult. It's hard. I'm I know. Gonna, oh. I have very few memories of Fred Rescue and Barney, Rangers? but I have a lot of memories of Tom and Jerry. So I'm gonna go with Tom and Jerry. I'll go with Fred and Barney. Then. All right, Just ding, 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 ding. <laughs> All right, guys. Hey, thanks so much, uh, Max. Dave, thanks for taking time out of your day to sit Absolutely. down and talk with us. Thanks and, for uh, looking us I up. I got a gist a little bit in there, so I won't go to well, hell. You know, Prost. we'll allow it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thanks again to Dave and Max. That interview was actually twice as long as what you heard. I had to cut out a lot of stuff, but... Both of those fellows are just so easy to talk to, and you can really tell they enjoy working together, and they make a great team. Also want to thank the staff and the patrons there at Infusion for making me feel so at home. It's always nice to make new friends. I will be back there, and you know the nice thing about Omaha for living here in Missouri, it's not that far, and if I plan an extra stop around that area on my way out to either Colorado, Wyoming, or the Dakotas, it'll be a great place to stop for a night and hang out at Infusion Brewing Company. Infusion Brewing has two tap rooms, the one I visited in Benson neighborhood at 6115 Maple Street, and their Southwest Omaha Production Brewery at 6270. South 118th Street. Both are open seven days a week and they do offer tours. So if you'd like to know what hours they're open and when tours are scheduled, head on over to their website, infusionbrewing.com. Hey, ha, da, 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 ya. Ha, hey. What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? So this week, Tony's here with me, and we're almost live at uh, Patty Malone's in Jefferson City. How you doing, Tony? Doing well. Yeah. How are you? Glad to make it. So we're in the same room together. That's talking. crazy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it is kind of crazy. Uh, but uh, Tony was home for the weekend, and we decided that we'd do this in the same proximity. So wait, wait, what do you got here for us? Uh, this, got- this is a BrewDog Jet Blackheart. Uh, it's their uh, oatmeal and milk stout. Uh, they're, they're actually a, uh, a Scottish company that has opened up a facility in Columbus, Ohio. Oh, yeah. And they brew it. And it's pertinent to the uh, the report today. Okay. Well, let's <laughs> pop this baby open and pour it into these. It's a nitro. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Where's this brewed here in the it, States? It's brewed in Columbus, but the, the company is uh, started in, in Scotland. And, oh, okay. And they opened up a, a U.S. facility that's a full-on brew, brew pub here in, uh, in the U.S. Cheers. Cheers. Wow. Yeah. A lot of vanilla. Yeah. I mean, that's loaded. Marilee's going to love this. It's not, I, I like it too. But, oh yeah, there's, it's front loaded with vanilla. I mean, a lot of mm-hmm. it. Smooth. So it's, oh, yeah, it's oatmeal milks, or yeah, oatmeal milk stout. With vanilla, yep. You hit it right. Nitrogenated. Yep. So, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, I brought the, the brew dog because uh, it's, it's about what, uh, it's pertinent to the story today. Um, but over the week, I saw kind of an Esquire and a Columbus Dispatch and some other places where um, open mon- opening this coming Monday um, is a three-story, 32-room hotel with eight suites that's kind of a little different than other boutique hotels. Um, it's got polished concrete floors, wood steel exposed lighting, you know. Um, you can let Cody know that dogs are welcome there. Hey, there, there there's a dog part yeah. on site. Um, but instead of a front desk, you check in at a bar. <laughs> it's the front bar. And basically what it is, out, out in Can- uh, Canal Winchester, which is southeast of Columbus, Ohio, BrewDog uh, U.S. headquarters is building onto their brewery, and it's the world's first craft beer boutique hotel. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, so, you know, I know Dogfish has a hotel they do. Uh, 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 attached to their brewery. They do. But So it's a boutique. Why? What makes it different from just being a regular brew hotel? Well, basically, it's called the Dog House, and uh, each, each room comes with a mini bar of, of cans, of BrewDog cans. Each room has a tap that hooks into a growler of your choice, so you basically can either get it out of the fridge or you can get it tapped into your room. Um, their sour facility is on site, and therefore you can actually pipe. They pipe the beer straight into the into the hotel to the to their bar area. Um, the soap in the bathroom is made from beer. The spa has hopped up beer treatments. 
Um, and my favorite part is that in each bathroom, there's a separate fridge right next to the shower for, for shower beer. Uh, you can just reach out and grab, grab a BrewDog can. <laughs> um, you know, there are beer-making pro- process graphics on the wall. There's a beer museum on site. And in the center of the whole place are 500 wine and scotch barrels. Um, that, this is, like I said, that this is their sour beer hub. And so beer is, that beer is piped directly into the hotel. And the larger suites have, like, rolling overhead doors that open right out into the facility. So you can just look out your room and see, see them making the sours there. So it's really for the beer nerd. And how long have they had this going now? They, they're just opening it on Monday. This, okay. is the, this is their first one. And they claim it's the first, the first ever uh, boutique craft beer hotel. Well, I think when go that way on one of the journeys, um, going to have to uh, stop and check it out. For sure. Well, they're an interesting company because it's actually a Scottish company that was founded in uh, Fraserburg in 2007 and is now based in Elon. Um, they were one of the primary pushers to get a lot of the beer laws changed in Britain. And in the, 20, in the 2010s, they just exploded. They opened bars all over the place from Edinburgh to Br- Bristol to Leeds to Stockholm to Sao, pa- Sao Paulo. Yeah, they, they had tied bars. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, yeah, it's uh, a little different over there. Right, yeah. right. And they got then they they hit in Japan too, and their plan is Australia and China soon. Um, but the, in 2017, they really made their landfall here in the U.S. by not only opening a bar, they opened up a, a brewing facility right outside there, uh, right outside of Columbus. So do you know their distribution is it just Ohio right now? No, there's so I found I saw it in Indiana as well, and they're they're, they're slowly creeping out of Ohio. Right. But, uh, but for, for the most part, I think it's right right there in the region. Like I don't think it's in Illinois, and it's not here in Missouri yet. We'll have to. Take a take a look at that and see if where you know where might be the closest place that we could get it for Missouri. Missouri's always lagging behind a little bit than everybody else. Uh, although I was in Arkansas last week and we're way ahead of them. Right. So, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so no, nothing against Arkansas guys. It was beautiful <laughs> and I had a great time down there. But uh, yeah, they're you know they're still they're still dealing with the dry county thing. So yeah. Yeah. Um, so, do these guys have any plans for like expansion if this goes well? Uh, yeah, for sure. They they want to they want to open up a second one. They don't know exactly where it will be. There's, obviously, this hasn't even opened yet. But right. th- th- this company is really big on marketing. That's kind of their thing. Right. Um, they were one of the first ones to open source the recipes. You know, making them all available to the public. They just loaded them up on the web, and everybody can make their beer. Um, they established a crowdfunding uh, share program that totaled really? about eighty percent of their company. Wait a minute, stop. Yeah. Let's, let's get back to we'll get back to the crowdsourcing. They are putting their recipes up on the web for home brewers. Yep. Yep. All everything down to the detail. No secret ingredients or anything. Holy cow! It's just to get people excited about their beer, and then that, that, as you can tell by the you know the saturation of their bars. I mean, it's, it seems to be working. Well, that surprises me in two ways. First off, that's not. That's not something that I've ever heard anybody else ever doing. No. And number two, because they're Scottish, and Scott, <laughs> and Scots are supposed to be thrifty and very, very, they, they pinch every penny that they can. And to, to put your own recipes out there, I, I wouldn't worry so much about the home brewer. But what about another craft brewer taking your recipes and trying to duplicate your beer? They're practically daring them to, you know? It's just like, come on, try it. And they, have, they already have this infrastructure in place. I mean, they got all these facilities. It would take somebody quite a bit. But I, they also, they, I guess they have faith in their process because they're constantly putting out new beers. And that's kind of their thing, too, is they, they, they uh, like in 2009, they launched a beer called Tactical Nuclear Penguin that was said to be the strongest beer ever made at 32%. And then 30, the, 32% yeah. alcohol. And then the next year, they topped that with Sink the Bismarck, which was a 41 ABV. And then just for the hell of it, they made a freeze-distilled brew called The End of History, packaged in stuffed animals at a whopping 55% ABV. And only 12 bottles of that were made, and they were priced at 700 pounds each, making it one of the world's most expensive beers as well. I mean, they're all about the marketing. They're all about just it's like... It's about marketing. Yeah, and they... Yeah. and they that's It's just taken off. So And the, well, apparently they have no fear about... Losing any proprietary knowledge. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 amazing. It's a good old-fashioned Scottish headbutt. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah, yeah. A Scottish kiss. That's right. <laughs> right in the forehead. Right in right in your nose. So, you know, well, that I've never heard of such a thing. I mean, this is really kind of this is kind of surprising. Um, anybody else that's even did you come across anybody else even remotely close to this marketing plan not not with all the, the gonzo stuff i mean obviously people are always trying to throw out alcoholic beers and like the pricey right. stuff that's kind of a typical thing but not all this stuff together especially in a crowd-friendly way like i mentioned the, the crowdsourcing that they do um kind of bringing in the, the company like eight percent of the company is owned by that you know that that um that crowdfunding share program 
And they just, yeah, they just, they just have fun with it. Obviously, with this hotel right. is kind of the other thing. Like, just come here and, like, you know, here's a beer fridge. Right, right. by the shower. Like, yeah. I might have expected that out of, uh, say, uh, an Irish company because they always <laughs> say, you know, about the Irish, if I've got a penny in my pocket, you've got a half penny. So, but Scots, <laughs> that really surprises me, culturally speaking. Sure. And th- that is a gross generalization, but we call it a generalization because generally it's true. So, anyway, thanks, Tony. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, we're going to have a few beers this afternoon. We're going to be doing something different over the next three episodes for the show. Tony is going to be uh, mailing in a report. Marilee and I, for our wedding anniversary, are going to sail across the North Atlantic from Norway to uh, Quebec. So that'll be a little different on uh, next week's uh, and the next three weeks for our programming. So anyway, well, thanks, Tony, for coming by. I really appreciate it. Thanks and for having me as always. I look forward to your uh, your stories coming in on your episodes over the next three weeks. Same here. Thanks. All right, man. Have a good trip. All right, take care. You too. Uh, bye bye. Oh, oh, here, here. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. We haven't been able to do that before. Right. been listening to the bruise traveler follow us on facebook twitter and instagram or check out our blog on website thebruisetraveler.com cheers well that's it kids thanks again for listening please go over to itunes and subscribe give us a five-star rating and write a glowing review and please subscribe did i already ask you to subscribe please do that subscribe you can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram at the Bruise Traveler Podcast. Facebook is the best place to find out where I'll be traveling next. You can also check us out on Twitter at the Bruise Trav LR. I'm still working on the blog. You know, I just need to cut my losses and get current on that and then catch up the backstories when I can, like when I'm on an airplane flying to Iceland or Ireland or someplace. You can find the blog and show notes over at thebruisetraveler.com. The musical soundtrack for The Bruise Traveler is generously provided by our good friends Gaelic Storm. Check out all of their music on iTunes or head over to their website, gaelicstorm.com. Make sure you check out their tour schedule. I know they're playing in the KC Irish Fest this coming weekend. If you're around the Kansas City area, be sure to go hear them play. They are fantastic, and this year year's show is as good as any I've ever seen. Marketing consultation is provided by Mission Digital Marketing and coming soon to the website, the Bruce Traveler stuff, hats, t-shirts, bike glances, etc., etc. We'll let you know when it hits the ground running. I'm on the road for the next three weeks. Well, not really on the road. I'm on the water. We're off to Iceland this weekend and then we fly to Norway next week and we're sailing on a Viking cruise liner from Bergen to the Shetland Islands, to Faroe Islands, back to Iceland, and then on to Greenland, where I'm going to investigate this seagull wine story. I'll put a link in the show notes so you'll know what I'm talking about. Then it's on to Newfoundland and up the St. Lawrence to Montreal, where Marilee and I are traveling with our good friends, Bertie and Sabrina. And so you're not going to see me at your favorite tap room or pub this week, unless uh, your favorite tap room or pub happens to be in Norway, Iceland, the Faroe Islands, Greenland. I'm really curious to check out the pubs in Greenland. It's a, so, but I will be right back here on the podcast next week. Remember, take care of each other and take care of the earth. It's everything we got. And also, as always, Merrily, I do love you. Thank you, dear. You are the measure of my dreams. I'm so looking forward to our trip together. So, thanks again, everybody. And so long for just a while. A good shipmate from Dublin town she came And the captain being an Irish man And Murphy was his name Twas on the 17th of March We lay in Mobile Bay And the captain being an Irish man Did celebrate the day The crew all being union men Who came from Dublin town And the flag they flew from the masthead Was the harp without the crown Hurrah, hurrah For the girls of Dublin town Hurrah for the bonny green flag And the harp without the crown Finish loading and homeward we will sail. May the Lord above protect us from many a wintry gale. We'll send aloft the canvas boys and work without a frown. And from the mast of the Shenandoah was the harbour without the crown. Hurrah, hurrah for the girls of Dublin town. Hurrah for the money 
are in the Channel, boys, there's lovely things to see. Those highland hills and lowland dales, they look so good to me. And now we're off the Bailey Light, the ship is seen from town. The girls all show here's the Shenandoah and the harp without the crown. On Dublin shore, we'll say goodbye to the Shenandoah and go to sea no more. We'll drink strong ale and porter and pass that jug around and say goodbye to the Shenandoah and the harp without the crown. 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 It is your character and your character alone that will make your life happy or unhappy. Senator John Sidney McCain III, warrior, patriot, statesman, citizen, born August 29, 1936, Coco Solo, Panama Canal Zone, U.S. Territory, died August 25, 2018. Sedona, Arizona.